This is the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. How about my parents with a foresight have given me that middle name? Comes in handy sometimes. everyone. Welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast, season uno, episode number 10. The one where I attempt to wrap this all up, at least for the season. I will be back for more. I guess I guess we'll call it season dose, right? And that'll probably be after the first of the year. As of these recordings, we're pushing into late 2019. So I need to get through the holidays and my oldest son's wedding, which I'm really looking forward to. Man, for you younger people, you got to have kids to watch them grow up. So much fun. And then to see them connect with other young, really beautiful, cool people. Man, it's all a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that as we head into the holiday season this year. Let's see. You can find me online at jonathanfosteronline.com. There you can learn about lqve.org. You can also probably find connections somewhere to missionchurchonline.com. And also, of course, you can find out about some of the books that I have online. Actually, you can find out about all the books, all three of them, including the most recent one, which has to do with the questions that I've been posing about sexuality in general and how to read the scripture in general, and maybe more specifically, that have to do with the handful of passages, because there's only a handful, that reference homosexuality specifically. And all of that has kind of put me in a position where some people don't like what's happening, other people do, uh, whatever. Either way, I'm in the middle of it now, and I'm really thankful, and I'm at peace about the direction where I'm going, and and a lot of people are being helped, and others aren't, (laughs) but that's okay too, because um, we're all in this together, and I I certainly don't wish anyone, I'm not trying to be antagonistic towards anyone specifically, but thankful that we're here. All right, so today I've got kind of a two-pronged approach. First, what I want to do is offer to you the most common questions that have been offered to me about this whole subject over the last year or so. Now, I know that I'm not going to be able to spend a ton of time on it because I've already done nine other episodes and I've written a little book, so you can find out more information there. And not to mention all the other really intelligent people in this world who are writing and talking about this kind of stuff. So I'm going to do it, do it a bit rapid fire. I hope by going through it quickly, it doesn't suggest to you that I think the answers to all these things are really easy. They're not. It's taken me a while to work through it and to be arriving at the places that I'm arriving at. So I apologize if that comes across that way. And then the second piece of what I want to do today is just maybe try to transition just a little bit enough to talk about where we all might go from here. I don't think any of us really know where this is all going to go, but I'm going to try to wrap it up in such a way that it gives us some hope at least, well, at least me anyhow, moving forward. So that's our plan for today. And if you haven't had a chance yet, I encourage you to leave a positive review, either on this episode or any episode for that matter. Those are really important for other people to see, 
Then again, I recognize you may not even like what you're hearing here. So in that case, just you don't have to worry about it. All right, GarageBand, I need a little transition music. How about some common questions that are thrown at me, and actually they have been thrown at me, but here's one. Um, often people obviously will just say, but yeah. Isn't homosexuality a sin? To which I normally respond, based on what? And then they'll normally respond, well. Based on what the Bible says? And then I'll say something like, well, you mean in the four verses in the Bible that speak directly about homosexuality? First of all, we should all realize that there are more verses about overeating and gluttony, and yet no one I know is crafting anti-overeating statements or affirming overeating statements and putting them on their church websites. So that tells us something. Secondly, no, actually, I've taken a pretty exhaustive look at this point at those four verses, and I don't think it's all that black and white. I suppose in some cases it is, in other cases it's not. But if it's not black and white, then people get to be a part of our faith community, and we'll let them figure it out on the journey. Furthermore, I would say that sin has too often been assumed to be a breaking of some objective rule. But at its core, it's missing the mark of God's law, which is not a distant list of rules unrelated to humanity. God's laws are about humans rightly relating to each other. Sin, then, is relational lawlessness. It's the tearing apart of what God is intending to bring together. Gay people can do this. Straight people can do this. It's sin. It wreaks havoc on all of our lives. But based on what I've read and based on the fact that I really don't know what's going on in people's hearts, I'm not going to categorically call out all of it and say it's all sin. These things are complex and they take compassion and care. And if I don't bring compassion and care, then I'll be in danger of being the one sinning here because of my judgmental views. So I can't say specifically that it's a sin for sure. And then often people will ask, well, isn't this a weak view on sin? And I normally will say something like, I guess it depends on your definition of sin. If your definition is, look, here's the list, and oh, by the way, sins of the body, they're moving up there towards the top, and the sexual sins, they're at the very top of the list, then yes, what we've done is we've just weakened that. And thank God that we have, because that view of sin, it's just a dead end. Because that view, it never seems to include the sin of benefiting from creating hierarchical power systems that point out the sin. Another really common question then is people will say something like, Don't you think you have a low view of the scripture? And I would say, no, I really don't think so. I really think that my view is a high view. I've been willing to change everything about my life to take this view on. I respect this way I'm reading scripture so much that I've been willing to lose close relationships, lose my church denomination, lose my reputation, whatever reputation I had, lose my income, 
It's a view that asks me to have Jesus be my guide and to use him to interpret everything in the scripture. And as it's turned out, it's a view that's asked me to be willing to let go of everything. So no, I I don't think that's like not having respect. I don't think that's a low view. Actually, I think that's a high view of Scripture. Another really common question is when people say, well... Aren't you opening the doors to all kinds of behaviors to be allowed? Again, I would say it really kind of depends on what you mean by allowed. Allowed what? To get into the church? I certainly hope so, because isn't that the point? All kinds of people are allowed because God still loves all kinds of people. I mean, what more does Jesus have to do to demonstrate that he's for everyone? Look at all the different outcast people that he hung out with in his life. The list is pretty amazing. And then people often follow that up with this idea. They'll say, yeah, but Jesus also called people to sin no longer. All right. So, (laughs) I feel myself taking a big breath. Isn't this fun just to talk about sin? Oh, boy. First of all, I would say with respect to the whole sin no longer thing, uh, if you just, you know, rewind a few seconds, most of this point is moot. If you revisit some of the things I just said regarding whether or not homosexuality is a sin in the first place. But beyond that, yes, when it's clear that sinning is taking place, Jesus did call people not to sin. But I mean, a couple of things. First of all, he does so with such a great attitude, with welcoming arms, with a non-judgmental presence about him. He just hung out with them. In fact, he was known as the friend of sinners. Do you think the church has that kind of reputation? I mean, I don't. We could, though. We could be the people who are called a friend of sinners. And if you're a friend of sinners, then you have the possibility of being able to call sin out. But we're not. We want to craft statements to tell everyone what we stand for before people even show up. We don't have to create hierarchies, but that's what we do. And we do it to give evidence to folks before they even get in the doors that we aren't really even particularly interested in journeying with them through all of this. We just want to tell them right up front. Additionally, I want to say something about how bad we are at having the power to be able to call out other people's sins. I mean, human beings are notoriously not good at this kind of a thing. I know that I'm not. I don't think the church has been. And it kind of makes sense because we're all involved in our own sin as well. So we're sinners pointing out other people's sin. Like, do you realize how weird that is? That's really skating on thin ice. So if Jesus calls people to sin no longer, you know what? I'm just going to let him do that. But I know I'm not very good at that. So I'm just going to come alongside people and help them. And let's just discover it together. And also, I I just got to say, and this point is so obvious that it's embarrassing to continue to have to make it. But it's the sins of the religious organization that Jesus reserves his strongest rebuke for. Why do we think it's preferable to be with that group and not the other group? Why do we think it's preferable to be a part of the 99 crowd and not the one crowd? I think what people are asking sometimes when they ask all of this is questions about boundaries and parameters 
and maybe the lines that we have at our particular church or that I think need to be drawn up in terms of people serving in the church. I think maybe that's what they're going for sometimes. And if that's your angle, then yeah, there are things that we should talk about. I mean, specifically with sex, there are things we need to talk about. And they usually have to do with power and coercion and consent and manipulation. Because I think those lines are consistent with the entire movement of Scripture, and they're consistent with the entire movement of humanity. What I'm trying not to do is to pick and choose certain verses that I want to highlight and certain verses that I don't want to highlight with respect to human sexuality. Now, I will say, as a side note, I am guilty, just like anyone else, of picking and choosing verses that I like. There's no doubt about that. And by the way, if you want to know, I do pick and choose a verse like 1 John 4.18, God is love, as my favorite verse. And I think that the whole movement of Scripture goes towards that verse. And so, yes, I do pick and choose. But with that idea more specifically, I'm just trying to let you know that, yeah, I don't think that like anything goes now. But as we interpret Scripture through the lens of Jesus, what I've realized is it gets really messy. I mean, it's a lot easier just to have it all in black and white and have this sexuality statement and everyone sign off on that. But the problem is that always winds up leaving somebody out. And I think that's a terrible thing for a church to be in the practice of doing. Do people self-select out sometimes? Yes, they do. But that's different than us categorically saying right up front, oh, we know exactly what's wrong and what's right with you. Because I don't think we do. I don't think any of us do. I don't even know what's wrong with me half the time. So now to have to have the burden of responsibility of calling out the sin of others? Ah, it puts us in a tough spot, man. Yeah, this is a really common one. People will say something like, well, Aren't you caving into culture by taking this position? So, initially, I'd like to respond by saying, actually, I don't really call it a position. I just see this as the direction in which Scripture is going and which Jesus is going. So, that's the direction I'm going. And beyond that, I would say, no, I'm not caving into culture. I don't think what I'm trying to do is to read the text in ways that help me give more dignity and respect to all human beings. And by the way, as far as caving to culture... Is it possible that us more conservative evangelical Christians were the ones that caved into culture? That is a Christian subculture, because that's a type of culture too. And it's a type of culture that conditioned us to think that being a moralist is the same thing as the way of Jesus. But it's not. Now, morals and behaviors, I mean, they play a role in the discussion But that's not necessarily the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus always has to do with entering into the life of the other person and of humbling yourself and being willing to go on the journey with them, of being willing to be called a friend of that particular person. Well, of course, finally, people will say, and usually they throw up their hands at this point, and they'll say something like, So you're willing to throw away ideas we've held for 2,000 years? But you know what? It took 1,800 years for us to decide slavery was wrong. It took 1,900 years for us to decide that women could vote. Yeah, it's taken 2,000 years. 2,000 years too long, by the way. I think it's okay for someone to change their mind about an important topic after a long period of time. 
artist knows exactly where this is all going. But let me just try to recap some of the points that I've made and then transition in a way that gives us maybe some space to move forward in this discussion. But if the story of Adam and Eve and their issues is more a story of humanity and all of our issues, rather than, oh, look, there's the specific mistake that we made. Now we're all screwed up because of it. And if the opening stories in Genesis, if they're not about the sequential way in which creation had to happen, rather, we can read it as a work of love by a God of love, who's not interested in violence, by the way, and who allows things to evolve, And if the story can be read not from a binary, this is man and this is woman, and therefore those two separate genders are frozen, and that's the only thing that God loves. If we can recognize that men have feminine and women have masculine sides, that even on a chromosome level, 50% of me comes from my dad, 50% of me comes from my mom, that we were created in an image of God, male and female. And if we could see ourselves through something more than just an original sin lens, that is that yes, sin has influenced us, but that before sin, there was love and that we were created in love and that God isn't in need of condemning us, that he just loves us like I love my own children, man, even more so. And if we can recognize that yes, of course, there are consequences, But that hell isn't the most powerful thing, nor is it the deepest thing in all the cosmos. Love is. And if we could be motivated from a place of security and peace rather than insecurity and anxiety. If we could see our tendency to create religious sinning hierarchies and that we almost always make our perceived sins of the flesh, of the body, a point of emphasis. And if we could see that we do that because of our shame about the body and our inability to recognize that it's good and holy and beautiful. And if we could have deep, humble, intellectually honest conversations about the very few passages that are in the Bible about homosexuality. If we could see that it's possible, like it's possible, that most, if not all, of what was written doesn't exactly connect with where we're at as a society right now. Like maybe in a similar way that what was written about slavery doesn't connect with where we're at as a society right now. Maybe it's the same thing with homosexuality, but that it's okay. Like we can still make good choices about all of this. And if we could do some really honest work around the word and the concept of the eunuch, And if we could see the progression from bondage to freedom throughout the pages in Scripture, from Deuteronomy where it says that they're out, to Isaiah who suggests that they're in, to Jesus who says that some are even born this way, and then of course to Philip who baptizes the eunuch, who by the way likely becomes the original missionary and the bearer of the good news of Jesus to North Africa. If we could recognize the connection that the Bible has with Christianity, but also see how Christianity has grown out of the Bible in the way that the forest grows out of the soil, and that the forest is more beautiful than the soil, and that it goes somewhere, and that the forest is nourished by the water, and if we could see the forest isn't chained to the soil, and becomes something bigger and more expansive in the way that Christianity is not chained to the Bible, and as it's watered by the water of life, becomes something bigger and more expansive. 
And if we could only see people as good, not marred, and as God being complete, not needing the death or the sacrifice of his own son to see people as good and not marred. And if we could recognize scapegoating for what it is, that it is the victimary mechanism that humanity has employed to purge ourselves of our anxieties and our sins, that wherever the spirit of accusation and scapegoating exists, so exists the spirit of the satanic. And if we could see, if we could really see how certain people were born with physical challenges or internal challenges, that some people are oriented towards homosexuality without any challenges at all, but that others have been through abuse and struggles and they're just making the best choices that they can, if we could really just see them as human beings and stop judging them from a moral perspective and just give them our love. If we could stop putting ourselves in the position of being the ones who get to assign judgment and blame, who are we to do that? I mean, which of us could completely separate outside forces or chance or a misstep or disorders of the mind or social constructs from willful, perverse disobedience? Who of us even cares to own that kind of judgmental power? And if we could just see how often we want to turn to Scripture to prove someone's guilt, but how so often we are so blind in turning to Scripture to see our goodness. And if we could stop listening to all those quote-unquote normal experts who have always been the ones in power, that is, the straight people, and just as we should have listened to the African-American help us to define slavery, so we can now listen to the gay person to help us to define what is normal or not. And if we could lay all of this aside, just let go of it for a moment and form relationships with other human beings and love and just dialogue. And if we could just create safe spaces to talk, then maybe, maybe we could be freed up to form third way kinds of questions. Questions that start from a more evolved set of grace-infused presuppositions. Among other things, this may lead us to conclude that any one person's sexuality may actually be amoral rather than a moral topic of discussion. Amoral and grace-infused presuppositions, they could open doors to entirely new ways of engaging with the subject. And we can all agree, we need entirely new ways of engaging with this subject because what we have had, it's just not working. We need new spaces where masculinity and femininity of both men and women can be acknowledged. We need spaces where the traditional gender roles can be rearranged, not out of spite or anger, but out of the reality that our culture has changed and therefore gender roles have changed. We need to talk about sex and power and patriarchy. We need to talk about masculinity. Masculinity isn't bad. It's beautiful and good and strong and it's needed, but patriarchy is different than masculinity. But speaking of patriarchy, we also need to have realistic and truthful conversations about hierarchies and systems. Because constantly being an anti-system person, well, it only backs you into a system of being anti-system. We need safe spaces for women and children to express what they're feeling and to be protected and for sure safe spaces where they're not being abused or manipulated. We need to let go of power. We need to redefine power. We need to confess our obsession with power. We need to confess that we often want to turn Jesus into an imperial religion, which often prohibits us from talking about the powerlessness of Jesus, 
For how can you be powerful to defend the powerlessness of Jesus? We need spaces where we can be wrong and ask questions and be faithful to the Spirit of Jesus, who aligned himself not with the powerful or the religious leaders. Rather, he aligned himself with those who had been cast out. We need to see the church not as the arbiter of all things moral, but rather as the hospital for all people broken. We need to see the cross not as where everything is fixed, but rather as the location where everything is held together. And we need a revival marked not by binary, pure, and impure religious rhetoric. We need a revival marked by people of love who are willing to be excluded for who they've included, rather than included for who they've excluded.